The time is now. Volume 3, Episode 48. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor as well. I've got a fun episode today for you. Well, maybe fun's a little overstating it. I think all of them are fun. Um, But this one hopefully will be an informative one. I get questions all the time about employee handbooks. Do we need to have one? Why? If we do, what should be in it? Does it have to be long? Can it be short? Does X policy have to be there? Does Y policy need to be in there? So I thought I'd bring on a guest who can actually speak to this issue uh, and give some real good information to all of you out there. Debbie Friedman is a colleague of mine. She's a partner here in our Labor and Employment Department. Debbie focuses her uh, counseling and litigation practice on compliance with federal and state employment laws and regulations. And among the multiple things that Debbie does on a day-to-day basis is both draft employee handbooks and review existing employee handbooks that clients have to make sure that they are compliant and up-to-date with the very latest uh, in uh, regulations on the federal, state, and local levels. So Debbie has agreed to come on today and talk a little bit about employee handbooks. Debbie, thanks so much for joining me on the episode today. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit about the uh, primary focus of your practice. Sure, Mike. I provide legal and business solutions to workplace problems. This involves counseling and advice, reviewing and drafting of employment documents, such as employee policies, employment agreements, and separation agreements. I also defend employers in discrimination and whistleblower lawsuits before federal and state government agencies and in courts. Perfect. So for today's episode and, and everything you've named, you know, we can spend weeks and months going through all of that stuff and uh, talking about all the great fact patterns and cases that you've been lucky enough to handle. Um, but, and maybe we'll do that another time. But at least for today's episode, we're looking at employee handbooks. Um, it's still in 2019, uh, such a, a big topic. There's been so much change in regulation and decisions coming out that it's, it's so important to understand understand that employee handbooks are a particular type of communication between the employer and the employee and how companies utilize employee handbooks as a mode of communication uh, is is so important. Um, Do you still get people, clients, asking you whether they should even have employee handbooks in the first place? Absolutely. What's typically your response? Well, companies, depending on where they operate, need to have one or more written policies. And the most critical policy is an equal employment opportunity policy. And those policies state that a company prohibits unlawful discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. And 
those policies also generally provide a procedure for employees to raise internal complaints and for employers to investigate them. And most companies also have other policies that they must put in writing or that they want to put in writing. And the result is that most employers have employee handbooks that house most or all of their employee policies, but there are still some employers that don't want to have the added paperwork and headaches. Yeah, and, and another, you know, situation that I still hear about is companies saying, well, you know, what do we really need to involve legal, whether it's in-house counsel or our outside counsel, looking at the stuff, I can go on the internet and, um, you know, find a, an employee handbook out there and just cut and paste or, or use it uh, as a whole. Um, without, and I say this all the time, uh, without sounding self-serving, certainly, what's your response to those who just want to go out onto the internet and find a handbook and use it? for their company? Handbooks are not one-size-fits-all type of documents, and I think that's where there's a misconception. There's different reasons that companies employ handbooks. So you want your handbook to achieve your own company's objectives. And very importantly, as you know, Mike, the laws in this area change rapidly. And there were regulations under federal law that would apply to employees in all states, depending on the size of the employer. And there's a myriad of state and sometimes even local laws that apply. And it's hard for HR professionals to look on the internet and find a handbook that complies with all of those laws, especially if they operate in various states. Yeah, and, and so much of this is also about tone. Um, what, you know, one of the interesting things when looking at these handbooks, whether it's creating something new or revising something that the company has already, is is what is the tone of the handbook? Because as you said, there is no one-size-fits-all, and what might be a good sound uh, or the way something reads to one company may be you know the wrong approach or the wrong tone for another company's workforce. So, uh, in terms of uh, some threshold questions, um, that's certainly true. Some companies, hello, are you there? I am. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? Not at all. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Well, you you were about to finish that, I think. I was just saying that some companies have employee handbooks as a recruiting and retention tool. They want to get employees excited about the workplace and see what a great place they are to work and to highlight all their fabulous benefits and to seem inclusive and open. Other employers really look at it as a rule book, as a way to enforce the message that there are strict do's and don'ts at this company, this is what we expect of you, and if you violate our rules, there'll be consequences. Absolutely. And so from a, um, I guess, a threshold question standpoint, when you're looking at whether the particular company should be doing an employee handbook, is this something just for large companies, just for uh, the bigger company to uh, think about doing? No. Handbooks serve a valuable purpose for all companies. And as you said before, they're crafted to address companies differently depending on their culture. And when you draft each handbook, that's why you take into account a company size because it depends what laws apply. 
the industry also depends what laws apply and the focus that you want to take and the company culture so um, and, and what are some reasons you touched on it a little bit but what are some of the reasons why an employer might choose to have a handbook well, aside from giving an HR department a lot more work to do, which they love, the reasons <laughs> vary. Um, sometimes it's because employees expect to have an employee handbook. Other times it's to help managers know what rules to enforce or to ensure that managers can point to a rule violation when they want to fire an employee. Often it's to satisfy clients or customers who want to ensure the company is compliant with employment laws. They also help set the tone of the company as we discussed. They can be used to demonstrate the benefits that the employer offers and show how competitive it is in the marketplace. They're also used to set employee expectations and to ensure consistency in the application of company rules and benefits. And finally, it's a handy way to make sure that all of a company's policies are distributed in one place. Yeah, no, those are great points, and it's it's interesting. So a lot of people do think that the only or maybe even the primary reason to have an employee handbook is because the law requires you to say certain things. Um, but I think you, you made an interesting point when you said that employees today uh, almost expect that you will have an employee handbook addressing certain issues. That's true, and usually those are the types of questions I get from smaller employers. They'll call me up and say, my employees are asking for a handbook, but I don't see a need to have one. So it shows that employees increasingly expect that type of document. Yeah, no, no question about it. So let's play a little bit of a game here. Uh, when we're talking about some policies that should, uh, could, or have to be in employee handbooks, if, uh, if you as a company are looking to draft something because you never had one, or maybe uh, you haven't dusted yours off and, and looked at it for some time and you're you're thinking about updating it um, let's pretend we're buying a car um, and so there are three buckets of decisions here the first is well this is the base model that you absolutely have to get the second bucket is well beyond the base model here are some recommended features that uh, you purchase with your new car and then the third bucket are really the optional luxury items you don't have to have them um, and if you're looking to be a little bit more cost conscious. Um, they're not stuff that have to be in the employee handbook uh, unless you really want to and make this much more comprehensive. So I'm going to name a whole bunch of different kinds of potential policies. Uh, and Debbie, if you could just give me a sense of whether you put it in any of those three buckets. It's something that absolutely is the required base model. You have to have it in your handbook. Um, or it's not necessarily required, but it's a recommended feature. Um, or or it's an optional luxury item only if you're looking to be totally comprehensive. You got the rules down so far? I do. <laughs> okay. So first one, um, at will employment language. What do you say about that? It's absolutely necessary if you're having a handbook because you want to make sure that your handbook is not viewed as a contract and that employees don't perceive it as a guarantee of employment for a specific period of time. Great. So making sure that, again, unless you're somebody who has a contract with a specific term of employment, you want to make sure that you've got all the bells and whistles um, and flashing lights in your handbook to suggest that, hey, 
these are all guidelines, but you still you're all at will employees. You are right on that. Okay, second one, you touched on this a moment ago, so this will probably be a bit of a softball question. Um, discrimination, harassment, and retaliation provisions. Which, which bucket is it for your new car? No surprise to say it's necessary, and that's why employers usually have handbooks in the first place. That's typically what prompts a lot of uh, clients to ask whether they should be having one if they don't have one, even for the small companies. Correct. Um, and tied to that, and I think, again, you mentioned this a few moments ago, um, having complaint procedures. What did you mean by that? When you have a discrimination, harassment, or retaliation policy, you want to afford employees an opportunity to raise their concerns on those issues internally. And that gives the employer an opportunity to understand what the concern is, investigate it, and take any necessary corrective actions. And it's also done to show the employee that you're listening, you care, you want to make it a good workplace and a respectful workplace for everyone. And you certainly don't want your employees to choose not to share that with you and instead go to a federal or state employment agency and file a complaint makes sense to me so in order to be able to tell uh, the world or at least your employees that you've got procedures and a process to address any kinds of claims that's really something that uh, you're putting in the required base model bucket of something that every handbook should have true and some states including New York require that employers put complaint procedures in their anti-discrimination and harassment policies so sometimes it's even a matter of law that's interesting um, used to be just something that uh, was recommended now a lot of jurisdictions um, require it it's a good point um, all right the next one uh, leave policies whether it's FMLA ADA or uh, these various state and local leave policies which bucket do you put that in various buckets some are necessary some are recommended, and then some are the optional luxury model. How do you break that down? So if we start with the necessary, if you're an employer who's covered by the Family and Medical Leave Act, meaning you have 50 or more employees anywhere in the country, then you need to have an FMLA policy, and it needs to be in your handbook. Likewise, you may have employees in states that have their own state family medical leave act such as New Jersey and if you are covered by those policies you want to have those in your handbook as well and in positions so that people understand how they interact with the FMLA and a big development in recent years has been paid sick leave policies. More and more states and localities are enacting those and many of those states and localities require that paid sick leave policies be distributed in writing to employees so the natural place to put them is a handbook. And then we can get fancy with all types of leaves whether it's leave for personal reasons or an extended medical leave or a leave for victims of domestic violence or a leave for jury duty or bereavement leave or military leave and depending on your jurisdiction 
it depends on which of these laws applies, which leaves you have to give, but they're not usually required to be in an employee handbook, and that's where it goes to how comprehensive you really want to be. And that brings up another good point as well, um, and is a good place, I think, to ask this. So we've got a lot of companies, obviously, out there who are multi-jurisdictional companies, so that they have office locations or employees in different states. And, and unlike where we might have been five years, certainly 10 and 20 years ago, um, as we say all the time, employment law is no longer just a national, federal practice. Uh, so many of these issues, and, and the ones you're touching on now when you're talking about leave policies, so much of this is state and local government driven. What, what do you tend to um, tell companies when they're asking about how to go about doing these employee handbooks when they are uh, operating in various jurisdictions? Are, are, is the better practice to have you know, 10 different handbooks if you're in 10 jurisdictions? Is it better to have one that just has the most strict uh, requirement in that that applies to all of the different jurisdictions? Where, where do you tend to fall on that question? I really like to be guided in part by my clients' desires because there isn't a one answer fits all. So generally speaking, I would say you want to have a general handbook that applies across all your jurisdictions. It makes for ease of enforcement and compliance. And then where you have particular state laws or local laws that only apply to a portion of your employees, you can either put them at the end of the handbook or in a separate addendum. And that addendum can be just focused on this state where the employee works, you just give them the agenda that applies, let's say, for New York or New Jersey. Or you can give them comprehensive addendum that shows all of the particular states in which the employer operates. But what I found is some employers like to do it in one document so it's easy. Some employers don't like employees in different states to see what other employees entitled to are entitled to that they may not be. And it's rare, in my experience, that an employer will try to do a handbook that encompasses all of those laws and provides the most generous benefits to all of its employees, regardless of where they work, because that can be very costly. Interesting. Okay, so let's uh, go back to our game and, and tell me where these potential policies uh, fit in our um, hypothetical car base model recommended feature or definitely an optional luxury item uh, a policy which talks about pay days and pay periods for the company it's recommended it doesn't have to appear in a handbook but in many states it has to be provided to an employee in writing so my view is if you have to provide it to an employee in writing why not put it in a handbook um, hours of work and the company's overtime policy. Well, starting with overtime, not required, but recommended. And that's really for a few reasons. It's so employees understand the law and whether they're entitled to overtime and what that means. And sometimes an employer decides to be even more generous in its overtime policies than the law requires. So in those situations, you would definitely want to put it in writing in your handbook and promote the valuable benefit that you're giving employees. 
and you also want to ensure that that benefit is applied consistently. Now, when you're looking at hours of work, it's not required. And I would say it's sometimes recommended. It depends on the industry. Sometimes what this means is that a handbook would just mention certain core hours of the day that employees are expected to be working without stating across the board start and end times. Okay, so the next one I've got is probably a little related to uh, leave policies, but when you're talking about vacations, sick days, and holidays, um, what bucket does that issue fall under? For paid vacation, that is recommended. Generally speaking, if an employer doesn't want to pay for accrued unused vacation upon termination, and if the state allows an employer to do that, that type of policy needs to be in writing so that employees are advised in advance. And again, why not put it in a handbook? And it's the type of information that employees expect to see when they pick up a handbook. So that one I would definitely put in there. The same with sick days and holidays. Not required, but certainly recommended and typical to be found in an employee handbook. Yeah, that's a great point too. There are a lot of jurisdictions um, and to, to the point of expe expectations that employees may have on things such as use it or lose it. Uh, you know, if I don't use my uh, PTO, my vacation uh, days, um, do they carry over? What happens uh, if I'm terminated or leave? Do I get paid out for the accrued but unused days? There are many jurisdictions which say uh, that there is a default principle unless you state to the contrary in writing. So to your point, it's uh, it's certainly recommended uh, to have these things in writing and the employee handbook's a good place to do that. Uh, what about employee classifications? They're not necessary and I would consider them a luxury item, meaning that if an employer wants to expand their handbook and explain the types of classifications they have, exempt and non-exempt employees, temporary employees, full-time, part-time, it's a great thing to do, but most handbooks can do without it. Okay, confidentiality and trade secret issues, is that something um, that should be or has to be in an employee handbook? No, it's not necessary, and my thoughts on that are if you want to put something about it in a handbook, you keep it brief and to the general premise of the importance of keeping company information confidential. And if an employee, excuse me, if an employer wants to put such a policy in a handbook, it's really important to point out that the policy doesn't prevent employees from discussing the terms and conditions of their employment, including wages. And I generally recommend to employers that if they really want a detailed confidentiality trade secret type of policy, that it should be in a formal agreement given to employees who have access to that type of information and are at risk of disclosing it to a competitor at some point. Yeah, and I trust you, you feel the same way uh, when we're talking about non-competes and non-solicit agreements as well, that they shouldn't just be, for lack of a better term, buried in a handbook. They should be the subject of a separate agreement signed by the employee if that employee is in a particular position where that might be applicable. Yes. All right. Um, privacy and uh, an employee's use of company property, where do you put that? Highly recommended. 
I can't tell you how many times employers are grateful for having a policy in their handbook that states that employees have no expectation of privacy in the use of company equipment because there are times when employers need to monitor or search, let's say, somebody's email. And being able to point to that and say that we told employees in advance that they have no privacy expectations and that anything they put on company equipment they have to expect it could be viewed is super helpful. Interesting. And, and closely related to that, I think, is, is a policy or potential policy on employee communications and use of social media. Where, where do you put that in your new car consideration? Also a highly recommended option. Often employees don't consider how their actions in and out of the workplace impact their employer. And that really comes into play when we think about social media. So I think it's great to set out those expectations for employees and put them in the place where they would expect to look for those rules, which is an employee handbook. Perfect. Um, so I got a few more that I want to run through with you because I think this is helpful for those who are creating sort of a starting checklist uh, if, if they're either trying to create a handbook for the first time or they're going back to look at one that uh, hadn't been looked at for a number of years. Um, a particular policy I see all the time, it's referred to as a solicitation slash distribution policy. Um, first, can you just tell us what that policy is for those who see it but don't know exactly what it is? It sets the parameters for when employees and non-employees can solicit other employees for causes and what we usually think of there is solicitation to join a union although it's not limited to that and the distribution of literature of pamphlets again what we usually think of in these situations is information about union organizing although it could be any type of cause and we usually recommend that those policies go into an employee handbook to again set expectations of what the company's position is on these very important issues. Okay, what about attendance and punctuality? Is that something that should be addressed in the employee handbook? It's not necessary other than perhaps a general premise that of course attendance is important as is punctuality. I also think it depends on the industry and the employer. The only time that I generally would recommend a comprehensive attendance policy is if the company employs a no-fault attendance policy with a point system because those policies are very detailed and again you want to set your expectations for employees that are subject to them. And when you refer to something like a no-fault policy, um, you also have issues when it comes to the Americans with Disabilities Act and, and you know, reasonable accommodation requirements. So it's, it sort of is a complicated issue when you're talking about no-fault termination or no-fault attendance policies. That's a really good point, Mike. And I think it's critical for employers to understand when they have those policies, whether they're in an employee handbook or not, to have them reviewed by legal counsel because of those issues that could so easily trip employers up. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Um, okay, what about employee benefits? I am not a fan of including that, so I would keep that out of your car. So not even the required base model? Change. Nothing? No. Why? No. 
because they change all the time that's number one and you don't necessarily want to change your employee handbook every year second and this is an important legal point is these are plans that usually have documents that we call summary plan descriptions and they set out all the details and limitations of these important benefits and when you start putting out other documents those documents risk conflicting with the summary plan description and that could get you into legal hot water if you make a promise outside of that summary plan description that you may be held to it so generally i like to say for employers if you just want to have one paragraph that says we give you know medical and dental and vision and life insurance that's great and then you want to refer employees to the summary plan descriptions great um dress code that uh, tends to be a big issue uh, at various times of the year as well. Is, uh, is that something that an employer should be taking a position on and putting it in writing it in a handbook? More and more, I see employers shying away from formal dress code policies. So I'm not an advocate in most situations of putting those in employee handbooks. The risk is that whether it's conscious or unconscious, intentional or not, you could be violating religious beliefs and policies and put yourself at risk for a religious discrimination claim, or that you're putting gender stereotypes in the types of dress codes that you set forth and put yourself at risk for a gender discrimination claim. And that's actually, it raises another interesting thought to me when I was talking before about um, companies cutting and pasting from either something they got from another company or something that they found on the internet. So, so much of what we're talking about in these issues, um, while it's been around for a while, there are so many new developments that if you're going out on the internet and finding a policy that was you know, created five years ago, maybe even three years ago in some cases, you're running the risk that what is stated in those examples uh, may be outdated and, and worse, maybe even unlawful now in 2019. Absolutely. And a lot of that also goes to best practices. We see how there's the before the Me Too movement and after the Me Too movement started. Some of it's what's legal and illegal. Some of it is what was acceptable before is clearly not acceptable anymore. And the same goes for dress codes. All right, I've got three more um, that I want to ask you about. First one, uh, conflicts of interest and outside employment opportunities. Where, where do you put that? Which bucket do you put that in? For the most part, I would consider that a luxury item something you only want to put in a comprehensive handbook but again it's going to depend on the industry that you're in if you're in say the financial services industry I would highly recommend you have a conflicts of interest policy in your employee handbook less so if you're in a manufacturing environment and for outside employment similar if you want to prohibit your employees from engaging in outside employment that's important to let them know or if you want them to ask you for permission before allowing it again important to let them know and put it in a handbook but these are not required items okay uh, performance evaluations what do you think about that totally optional I 
don't generally recommend that employers mention those in employee handbooks. The reason I say that is that I find in my practice, and I'm sure you do too, Mike, that it's not followed as much as we would like it to be. <laughs> that employers sometimes don't give employment um, performance evaluations when they promise to do so. Or the content or the process varies from what they might have stated at one time was their process or content that they go by. That's another great takeaway here um, for for everything that we're talking about, whatever you put in your handbook. Um, I guess the first part of what's important here is you want to make sure it's lawful and you want to make sure you're following best practices as well. But at the end of the day, you also need to make sure that you are acting in practice consistently with what you've put in writing. Otherwise, you're opening yourself up to a potential breach of contract claim uh, for not following a handbook that someone might deem to be a contract. And so that's that's also another great segue to the last one that I wanted to ask about, um, which, which really prompts a whole lot of debate, uh, and that is progressive discipline. What's, what's your feelings on progressive discipline and the extent to which uh, it's required, recommended, or an optional luxury item? It's definitely an optional luxury item. It's not required to be in a handbook. I only recommend it when a company consistently uses it for a large group of employees because the same way with performance evaluations if it's honored more in the breach than in the practice you don't want to have it in your handbook exactly so unless you know that you are and you have historically uh, used specific progressive discipline uh, I often find it's a mistake to put that in uh, so rigidly in an employee handbook. It doesn't prevent you from engaging in progressive discipline. It doesn't prevent you from giving someone a warning, whether it's a verbal warning and then a written warning. But the flip side is, is also true that if you have a specific progressive discipline step-by-step um, -step process in your handbook, you better make sure that you are following it and following it consistently. Um, so I, I would be remiss, Debbie, if I uh, didn't ask you, as we're talking about handbooks and handbook policies, um, what your thoughts are on uh, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. And we've spent a lot of episodes in this podcast talking about the NLRB. Um, we've been talking ad nauseum over the past few years about the NLRB and its crackdown, and perhaps now, more recently, its retreat on employee handbook issues. Uh, where are things now, generally, with what an employer needs to be concerned about from the NLRB standpoint at least? Well, as of right now, subject to change at any time as we know, <laughs> um, the, the board is trying to strike a balance between an impact on employees' rights and then the legitimate justifications that an employer has in maintaining a work rule. And so what they've done now is said that we're not going to find workplace rules to be unlawful just because they could be interpreted as covering potentially protected activities. We're going to create some buckets. And the first bucket, a big bucket that they have created, is what they call Category 1. These are lawful types of policies and rules that do not restrict anyone's rights under the Act or their justifications outweigh any tendency to restrict 
and employees' rights. And, and examples of those are civility rules, no photography and no recording rules, rules against insubordination, rules protecting confidential proprietary information, rules against using employee, um, excuse me, employer logos, rules requiring authorization to speak on behalf of a company, and rules that deal with disruptive behavior. And it's interesting. It's interesting because before you had this sort of Republican administration, now we're on the, the national federal level with the NLRB, um, there was so much debate, uh, vigorous debate, about the, a lot of the rules that you just mentioned, particularly civility, where you know the NLRB and its prior administration was cracking down on employers who simply had a policy that stated you got to be civil with each other, you can't, you got to be courteous, you got to be nice to each other, and uh, the the business community could not believe that something like that would be unlawful. And it seems like the uh, NLRB, uh, in its current uh, carnation, is uh, retreating from that hardline stance. Right, which is very welcome for employers, but that's why we say at the moment, because of course it could change, especially when administrations change. And so those are the rules where I think the NLRB now has come out and said these are, uh, at least by default, okay with us. Uh, have they taken a similar kind of more defined position with other types of policy categories? Well, as I said, there's several buckets. The second bucket, category two, are rules that the board is saying warrant individual consideration. And so they're not necessarily enumerated. And then the final bucket is a category three bucket. And those are rules that are presumptively unlawful and they restrict workers' rights, so you should not have them. And two examples of those are confidentiality rules regarding wages, benefits, or working conditions. As we mentioned before, those are issues that employees are allowed to discuss and employers cannot prohibit them from discussing. And also rules against joining outside organizations or voting on matters concerning the employer. You can't have those rules. They are presumptively unlawful. Yeah, at a minimum, I think, again, another takeaway here is um, give some thought to what policy you're trying to put into your handbook and why. Um, again, you know, you made the great point right at the opening that there is no one-size-fits-all here. Um, every company has its own unique issues, even same, you know, even different companies within the same industry. Um, but when you're sitting down, don't just look at this as an exercise to, again, cut and paste from someone else's handbook or, you know, just put something in the handbook because you think uh, other people have been talking about it and other people do it. Give some real thought to what your business interests are, your legitimate business interests are, uh, and then create a policy that's defined and narrowly tailored to accomplish your goal without being overly broad, vague, and uh, running the risk of, of violating the law. Definitely agree with that. So um, this has been extremely helpful. I think it uh, it provides uh, some good food for thought when people are going out doing some car shopping. Um, do you have any other uh, takeaways or any other uh last thoughts on employees using employee handbooks as a mode of communication? It's a generally effective way to communicate some important concepts with your employees. And as a last takeaway, it's important that when you have an employee handbook, that you don't just 
put it up on a shelf and forget about it, that you look at it optimally on a yearly basis because as we mentioned earlier, laws change and change rapidly and sometimes in ways that we don't foresee and that can require changes to your handbooks on sometimes even an annual basis. That's great. This is great stuff. Debbie, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you did find that to be informative. I really appreciate, as always, you listening. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.